0: I invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 13 this morning. Mark 13. Uh, What a a tremendous text for us to consider uh, as we consider uh, the theme of the service being command to watch and to be alert, to be on guard for the return of the Lord. As you're turning to Mark 13, let me just give you a word of warning. It was uh, back in September, I think, that... uh, I received in my cell phone, like probably many of you did, a warning from the president of the United States. It was, it's called an EAS, the emergency alert system. I don't know if you got that. If you have a cell phone in the United States, you were supposed to have. Uh, but it enables the president of the country to get word out to the country regarding an emergency. Uh, today, I want to give you an alert uh, to every person in church. Are you ready? As we come to Mark 13, we come to a difficult text. A difficult, difficult text. One scholar described it this way, James Edward. He says, this chapter is one of the most perplexing chapters in the entire Bible. As a former professor at a Bible college, I had the opportunity to teach you this chapter on over 20 occasions. And uh, yet, although I'd done that, I saw this chapter coming over two months ago for us. Matter of fact, one of the reasons, you know, when I was thinking about what book of the Bible we're going to work through as a church. You know, I I thought of Mark, but I thought, man, that's going to be really hard when I get to Mark 13. And so I almost didn't didn't preach on Mark, to be honest with you. Although I have um, spoken on this over 20 times in classroom settings and have had over two months now off and on uh, to be able to work on it, I just want to make a confession. I gave you a warning, not a confession. I am still flabbergasted by this text. So I don't even know you knew the word flabbergasted. I didn't until today. And this text. I'm flabbergasted by this text. I've been putting in extra time in order to understand it and think about how to present it, but it is hard. So are you ready? Have you had your coffee yet? Four cups. All right, let's pray and ask God for strength. Father, we come to the one who can open blind eyes. We come to the one who's given us the Holy Spirit of God to en- enable us to illumine our minds and our hearts and our eyes. And I pray that as we work through this text, we might be able to understand it in detail as we survey through this chapter today. Might we get it through the Spirit and, and then, Lord, might we apply it. May this not just be an intellectual pursuit, an academic pursuit. It may it not be something that someone just Zones out because they hear the warning. But Lord, uh, may the pastoral words of Jesus at the end of this text form a warning to each one of us and a challenge as we look forward to the soon return of the Lord. We thank you, Lord. Pray for grace and strength. In Jesus' name, amen. The, the, uh, the main debate of this text, as I see it, has to do with Jesus and whether this sermon, Mark 13 is solely addressed as a prediction of the destruction of the temple it's obvious as you go through here he's talking about the temple and the temple is going down it's going to be destroyed Uh, whether it's solely addressed as a temple or whether it also includes prediction of the second coming of Jesus and then uh, even if you say it's temple and second coming of Jesus it gets hard to know exactly when he's talking about which one of these now, if you go to the Old Testament scriptures and you study the prophets, you know sometimes the Old Testament prophets write telescopically. That means they write and they're forecasting events far in the future. You ever heard of the mountaintops of biblical prophecy before? In that concept, sometimes a biblical author in the Old Testament will be writing in such a way where he'll be describing things, and it's like like you're describing a mountain range. And, And he describes them as being very near each other, right upon each other. But then the closer you get to the mountains, the more you realize they're actually separated by, in some cases, miles or hundreds of miles. That's what I think Jesus is doing in our text. Sometimes Jesus will be talking about the destruction of the temple, which occurred in AD 70, and other times he'll be talking about his second coming, which is at least 1950 years later and counting. Right, right. So as we go through this text, the challenging part for us will be to determine when he speaks of the first century and when he speaks of something future even to us. The primary theme of this sermon is a call to watchfulness. And so whether he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, he tells the disciples, watch, be alert, be ready or whether he's talking about his second coming when he comes to deliver Israel. He says, watch, be alert, be read. And so to see this main message clearly and to work through this text with you, I want to go through a brief survey and look at this chapter. Uh, the chapter's three parts in this survey. There are three parts to this chapter about the end of the temple and the end of the age. And so first we see the setting, verses 1 and 2. So just look down your Bible. Since he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Here, Jesus' teaching starts out easy enough, right? You remember, he's been in the temple for a long day. He's been debating the Sanhedrin, the coalition of religious forces. They're trying to trick him up. And, and so now he's finally leaving the temple. He said the scribes, this is what we talked about last week, the scribes were especially horrible lot of people. They looked good on the outside, right? They, they wore long robes, to religious gatherings, they had it together on the outside, but they would receive the greater condemnation, Jesus says, because of what's inside. What's inside. So after this condemnation, Jesus comes out of the temple with his disciples, and one of the disciples, who's unnamed here, is struck by how spectacular the exterior of the temple is. Not the exterior of the scribes. Now we're looking at the exterior of of the temple. He says, you see these amazing stones, this amazing building? Now, I'll just start by saying this probably shouldn't surprise us as we consider the ancient temple in Jerusalem, the second temple built by uh, Solomon, expanded by Herod. It shouldn't surprise us because it was a massive complex by ancient standards. The building complex of the temple took up over 35 acres of land a size large enough to contain 12 full football fields. The temple covered approximately one-sixth one of the entire city of Jerusalem. It's a large building. Uh, today, there is a, a, a place uh, uh, of the temple, uh, of, the, of the foundation of the temple, called the Western Wall that... People have made sacred where they go and pray, but we have to understand that that western wall was not even a part of the structure itself. it's just a supporting structure for the massive building of the temple. One part of the temple is called Solomon's Colonnade, and in that temple alone, there were over 162 columns in rows. Those columns all stood 40 feet high. That's approximately five stories high. It said about one of those columns that it would take three grown Jewish men trying to reach their arms around. If they got three men together and they reached their arms around one of those columns, they could barely touch each other's fingertips. This is a big building. One stone found near the temple, which might have been a part of its structure, is 42 feet long, 11 feet high And 14 feet deep They've estimated that that one stone Would weigh over 1 million pounds <laughs> This is a massive structure So imagine this disciple Perhaps from Galilee is back at the temple of Jesus he comes out He's like, man, look at this building And these stones But then Jesus says Something spectacular it says this building will be utterly destroyed, and not one stone will be left standing upon another in the edifice of the temple. Jesus's prediction here naturally leads then to some private instructions, and that's where we go next. The second point of the sermon is the questions. Disciples then ask Jesus two questions. Look at verse three. And he said in the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, here are the questions, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And you said the temple's going to be destroyed, not one stone upon another. Uh, when will these things be? What will be the sign when they will be accomplished? It okay, so as his normal practice in Mark's gospel, Jesus says something amazing and the disciples get him alone. Here in this case, four of his disciples, the original four uh, in Mark chapter one that come and follow him, uh, ask him questions. And the disciples' questions might seem simple enough to us, but it becomes more difficult, more complex when we compare this gospel to the other gospels that record the questions that are asked. And And to save us a little bit of time, for sake of time, I have put these up here for us. So uh, this story is found in three Gospels, the Olivet Discourse. In Mark and Luke, it basically comes in this way, the two questions. When will these things be and what will will be the sign of all these things? In Luke, it's what will be the sign of these things? These two questions agree very closely and they seem to be related closely, both questions about the destruction of the temple, right? So when's this gonna happen? When the stone's gonna overturn? And what will be the sign that will will prepare us for these things? However, when you compare this to Matthew's gospel, he gives two questions too. He has these four asking two questions and the first one agrees, when will these things be? And the second one is different though. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. See how it's different? What will be a sign of your coming? I think the second coming, return of the Lord, and what will be the sign of the end of the age? So Matthew has the disciples asking two questions that are not necessarily related. They might think that they're related, but in time they're not especially related. He has them asking about the destruction of the temple and a question about Jesus' second coming and the end of the age. So. How can this be? How could Matthew, or Mark and Luke have the second question referring to the destruction of the temple and Matthew have it referring to the second coming of Jesus in the end of the age? I told you it'd be a little hard, are you still with me? Well, this is how I answer that. I believe that these four disciples asked Jesus all kinds of questions about his bold prediction. I mean, you say, like, not one stone upon another? So I don't think what we have recorded in any of the Gospels would be thoroughly all the questions the disciples ask. I think they ask questions about the destruction of the temple, the end of time. I think they ask questions about the return of the Lord. I think they ask all of these questions. And so in the actual events involving Jesus and his disciples, they ask him about the end of the temple and the end of the age. They also ask him about his coming. They want signs for all of this and probably didn't even know that they could be talking about different things. I mean, they think when the temple's destroyed, that's evidently when Jesus is coming back and going to be the end of the age. Now, regardless of which parts of these questions each gospel writer records, they all, every one of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have Jesus answering the disciples' questions by referring at times to the end of the temple and at other times to the end of the age. So every one of these. Now, as we look at Mark, they ask two questions. Okay, so go back to Mark, two questions. I think they're both about the destruction of the temple. Jesus's answer at times will go beyond that to the end of all things as well. Okay, again, separated by at least 1,950 years. Okay, so that leads us to the answers. Okay, and this is going to be a fun part that we work through, and I think we'll all get this. Okay, the answers. His answers take the rest of the chapter. And Jesus' answers involve both plain instruction and, later on, parables. First half will be plain instruction, the second half will be parables. His plain teaching will first involve the end of the temple, verses 5 through 13. So we're just going to survey through this, go pretty quickly through it. The end of the temple. And then in verse 14, there's a transition to now Jesus is going to address the Lord's return. Okay, and so this is how I I see things here uh, in this text. So let's look first at his teaching regarding the temple. Look down at verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pangs. But be on guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, you'll be beaten in synagogues, you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay, so to be clear, I think that Jesus is talking with these four disciples about when the destruction of the temple is going to happen. He starts by first saying, uh, in, in answering the question, they want to, what are signs that will tell us when it will occur? He starts first by saying, let me tell you about some things that don't necessarily mean it's coming. Among these things, he says, are people claiming to come in Jesus' name, but who intend to lead the disciples away from Jesus, actually. I mean, Jesus will, in some cases, after he dies and he no, rises from the grave and he is exalted to heaven he will become popular in some ways in Jerusalem. And so Jesus is warning them that there can be people who come along. They say they're speaking in my name. They're false teachers. You know, avoid them, but that doesn't necessarily mean the temple's going to be destroyed. Among these things, he also says, he adds that wars and rumors of wars around Jerusalem are not necessarily a sign that the temple's going to be destroyed. Do you imagine Jesus says, not one stone is going to be left upon another, and then the disciples, all of a sudden, they begin, like, when's it going to happen? And any little rumbling, any little battle, any war, even outside of, they might be thinking, oh, now the, the temple is going to be destroyed. Jesus says that's not necessarily the case. He says, neither are earthquakes or famines that occur. I think what Jesus is doing here is he understands that oftentimes we interpret the events of our own lives as like prophetic things. So we go through an earthquake in our country, in our land, and it'd be devastating to us, but we think, sometimes we interpret it if we're not careful, it's the end of the world. Or it's, the, for the Jews, it's the end of the temple, it's coming. He says these are not necessarily things that trigger the destruction of the temple. Instead, in verses 9 through 13, he gives them a sign. Here's a sign or evidence you'll know when it's about time for the temple to be destroyed. And the way I'd show it to you is just by pointing out one verb in the text. Look at verse 9. This is when you're going to know when the temple is going to be destroyed. He says in verse 9, Be on guard for they will deliver you. See the word deliver you in the text? Very strong word deliver. Now look at verse 11. Verse 11 says there, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you, see verse 12, and brother will deliver brother over to death. So verses 9 through 13 are one paragraph, and there's one word that holds it all together, one verb that's repeated three times. It's this word deliver. It could be translated betray. Betray. And so Jesus is saying here, there's one, there'll be one sign that you have for when the destruction of the temple is nearing, and that's when you are betrayed. When people perform a high act of treason against you, four disciples, and they deliver you over to councils and to corrupt synagogues to be judged by them. In fact, this word for betray, just to show you how strong this word is, it starts here three times, seven times in the next chapter, and you know who's the one betraying in chapter 14 over and over again. It's Judas Iscariot with Jesus. So, I think what Jesus is doing in these first few verses, he's saying that increased persecution for his name will be a sign that the destruction of the temple is drawing nigh. It's coming. And for you to see this fulfilled, all you got to do is look at the book of Acts. And you see the disciples bearing the brunt of persecution, as this text says in Mark, on account of the name. Of Jesus. People like Paul the Apostle, stoned, beaten, thrown in prisons, appearing before governors and kings and rulers so that the gospel would be known to all of the nations. Jesus says, You want a sign of destruction in the temple? I'll give it to you. Betrayal. You're all going to be betrayed, delivered over. And that'll be your sign. Verse 14, I think that uh, he goes into a second form of teaching about the return of the Lord. Here is plain teaching which covers his second coming. And I want to read that for you, verses 14 through 27. So look with me in these verses. I think this is all one section about the Lord's return. It says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in in those days, for that it may not happen, pray that it may not happen in winter, verse 19. For in those days... There will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. This is serious. Whatever this is. Verse 20. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be delivered. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. Verse 22, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from the heaven and the powers of, uh, in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. These verses are a few, first confusing. I want to walk through them just in a few steps. First, Jesus talks, or when Jesus talks here, about the abomination of desolation, I believe that he is speaking of a future act that will occur in the end times. He actually borrows this expression. Maybe that phrase is very peculiar to you. You say, the abomination of desolation, what is that? I mean, if you've been in church for a while, you may have heard that before. But even if you've been in church for a while, you're still thinking, what's the abomination of, of desolation? Well, Jesus borrows this phrase from the Old Testament, from the book of Daniel. It f- it's found three times there. In that book, Daniel predicts that there's coming an act of desecration that would occur in the temple that would pollute it thoroughly. In fact, I I prefer to translate the phrase the abomination of desolation as the abomination that desecrates. So something is going to occur in the temple that will bring desolation. I think Jesus borrows this language to speak of a future act that will corrupt a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. I think we know that these things are still future many clues in this text but especially by the end you get the Son of Man coming with cl- in the clouds. Yeah, so, so you know this is future. So this is a future act that will occur in the end times. Secondly though I'll say it this way Jesus identifies this act the abomination that desolates the temple directly with a person. Look again at verse 14. When you see the abomination that brings desolation standing where he Shouldn't be. He said, Not only is this an act that desecrates the temple, Jesus is using it about a person. In my opinion, Paul the Apostle helps us out with this, and we don't have the time again to look there or turn there. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul talks about a person who comes into the temple and who desecrates it. Let's read you a few verses. Let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the man of lawlessness, that's how Paul describes him, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. That could be translated, the son who brings perdition is revealed. He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you think that's going to desecrate the temple? Some man, full of himself, sits in the temple claiming to be God. The man of lawlessness, the son that brings perdition to the temple. It appears that both of these texts talk about a person. Mark 13, 2 Thessalonians 2, and the Antichrist who desecrates the temple. And so, third, I'll add to this when you see, Jesus says, when you see this man coming and desecrating the temple, Jesus says, flee. The Jews living in this day who fear God should not take the time to collect their stuff, they should just get out. They see this abomination that desolates this man in the temple. And they better hope for two things in Texas. They better hope that this doesn't happen in the winter. Why? You still with me? Just go serve it, right? It doesn't happen in the winter. Why? Because of difficult travel conditions. And they better hope that they aren't pregnant or have little children at this time to take care of when they flee because they're going to have to go quickly. For when this happens, Mark says, God is going to send a tribulation so severe that it's unlike anything that they, the Jewish people, it's like anything they've ever seen before. And that's amazing, folks. Think of Holocaust. This tribulation is gonna be like anything they or the world has ever experienced. The great tribulation. The nature of this judgment or tribulation be so severe, the text says in verse 20, No human being will survive it unless God ends it. If you're not frightened, yeah, I mean, these are terrifying words. The sun will go dark. The moon will not give light. Stars will fall from heaven. And the powers of heaven will shake. His language here to basically say the universe will begin to deteriorate. Terrifying language. And then men and women, amid this great cosmic uphe- upheaval will come the true sign of the end of the age. All these other things are precursors. The true sign of the end of the age comes when the Son of Man, Jesus himself, will come In the clouds of heaven, the text says. He will come in all of his glory. I couldn't help but think as I was preparing for the sermon, this is where if Ross Olson could hear us today, he would say, Brent, make much out of that one. Sure, you got like stars falling, you got the sun darken, you've got the moon darken, but the son of man is going to appear in the clouds. All of his glory. And don't worry, no one is going to miss this sign. We have the time to go over to Matthew to read a parallel verse, but Matthew 24, 27. Matthew describes it, Jesus saying it this way, it will be like a lightning bolt that fills the entire sky from east to west. And then in our text it says and he will send out angels into all portions of the world to find his elect. I think the elect are the Israelite people who've managed to escape the Antichrist and the tribulation judgment of God. These chosen Jewish people will be delivered by a miracle. The interaction of Jesus, the Son of Man, to deliver them. In my opinion, my humble opinion, they will be saved through a profound miracle, just like Paul the Apostle. So you know how Paul was saved? Going on a road to Damascus, what happened to him? He saw a vision of Jesus, could I, could I use the phrase, the son of man? And this former persecutor that was against Jesus, when he sees a vision of him, he believes. And so when, this, when, when these skies open up and the son of man returns, there'll be a miracle profound with the Jewish people Will believe on Jesus without, I mean, how could you not believe in him at that point? And men and women, that's the end of the age. You say, wow, I mean, there are some things you see or you hear or you read about and you say, man, that is powerful. Would you agree with me? I'm just like quickly going through it. I mean, there's no doubt here that we're talking about power, but we're not done with the chapter. And so we just go quickly through the final parts of this chapter. So there's plain teaching and there's parables. And this is how we can go quickly through it from this point on. I think that the two parables found in the second half of the chapter follow the same order of teaching that you got to this point. If you mark in your Bible, you put brackets in there, I put brackets around here. This is a hard passage. I mean, this is like not a normal Sunday, is it? Two parables. The first parable is about the end of the temple. He goes back to that and then the Lord's return. And so uh, look with me at this parable about uh, the end of the temple. Verse 28. From the fig tree, learn his lesson. As soon as his branch becomes tender and puts out his leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Here, Jesus intends a parabolic comparison between a fig tree's leaves and summer. He says, You know, summer's near when you see leaves on a fig tree. He says, You also know, I think, the temple's destruction is near when you see these things taking place. And he goes back to the first part of teaching the betrayals, the beatings, the Persecate. When you see all this stuff happening to you, you know the destruction of the temple's dear. Matter of fact, one little thing I'll show you. Look at verse 29 again. He says, so also when you see these things, take note of those words, these things. Look at verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until, and take note of these words, all these things. Verse 29, these things. Verse 30, all these things. Got that? Now go to verse 4. They asked ask him a question at the beginning. Tell us, when will these things, same as verse 29, be? And what will be the sign of all these things? Same as verse 30. I said at the beginning, I think that these questions have to do with the destruction of the temple. That's the ones Mark records, what disciples asked. And so I'd say this section right here is about the destruction of the temple. And so then Jesus adds in verse 30, go to verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. I think what he's saying there is the current generation of Jewish people during his day, that generation will continue and it won't even pass away until the the temple's destroyed in AD 70. So one of the things that struck me about this, you know, who's he telling this to at the beginning? Four people. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, one of these men will be alive for sure. John will be alive for sure when the temple is destroyed. And so he says these things will not pass away until this generation. Uh, this generation will keep living until that time. And Jesus' words are reliable. They won't pass away. This will certainly happen. And there's one last parable for us to consider In verses 32 through 37, this parable is about the return of the Lord and we'll close with this. Look at verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, disciples, four of you, I say to all, everyone, stay awake. Here Jesus marks out, I think, an important discussion or transition in the text in, Verse 32, with the words, but concerning. It's come from two words that are used all throughout the New Testament, used in 1 Corinthians many times. Remember, we saw markers of transition. Now concerning spiritual gifts, now concerning all these things, it marked a new topic. These words, but concerning, mark a new topic. He's giving us a parable about that day and that hour, I think, being the day and the hour that the Lord returns. regarding the timing of the lord's return he says no he says only god the father knows when it will be not angels not even the son right we wrestle through this jesus just says it we wrestle I mean how could the son not know the eye? i think it's just a testimony to his true humanity i won't get into all of it i just think it's his self limiting he says he doesn't even know So I think this should be a word of warning to us, right? Don't try to figure it out. Don't listen to someone who comes along and says, I know the day and the hour when Jesus is going to come back. Like Jesus doesn't even know that. Don't give me that. Then he gives a parable about a man who leaves his house and he expects his doorkeeper to stay alert. The doorkeeper has one job to do, Right? Guard the door. Keep the bad guys out. Let the good guy in. The master. So Jesus expands this to his disciples. He says, be on guard. Stay awake for you do not know when I'll come back. I think here we see Jesus' pastoral words that are then applicable to every one of us. The Lord's return for us, the rapture, could be at any time. So, keep watching. Keep watching. Be vigilant for the return of the Lord. At any time, Christ can come in the clouds to rapture His church. So be ready. Stay alert to these things. Have you ever had to stay alert looking for something before? I have fond memories in my, of my childhood of being with my father in hunting. Okay, there were only two things in the world that I would ever get up early for. Golf and hunting growing up. So I have fond memories with my dad. My dad, the, the way this would normally go, we'd, we'd hunt in the same place and he would take me uh, to this big... Land, you know, it's first day of uh buck season, and so we go out there at an ungodly hour. Pastor Paul says, dark and early. And my dad would sit me. He didn't believe in like tree stands, you know, like things to make you know life a little bit easier. But he would sit me at the base of a tree on the top of a tall hill. I remember this one occasion it was so cold and it was dark, I couldn't see anything. I'm sitting at the base of this tree, and I've got one job at that time. What is that job? Stay awake. You know, avoid, like, two jobs avoid hypothermia, stay awake. (laughs) So I'm sitting at the base of this tree, and I, I have to admit that I fell asleep. It was cold, I'm like all huddled, fell asleep. And I woke up, it was daylight. And as soon as I woke up, I kind of woke up softly, I looked, and honestly, within seven feet of me or so was a buck. I mean, seven feet is generous, he was right there. And I couldn't get my gun. Because the second I started to move my hand, the buck took off. Had one job, stay awake, be alert, you never know when, Come through this passage. Men and women, this is a tough passage. It's hard. Thank you for listening and trying to follow along. But Jesus' words for the disciples regarding the temple and his return in the future were the same. Stay awake. Be alert. Be on guard. And to us, I say the same. As we go throughout this week, may we be ready for the return of the Lord. Mean the Lord in the clouds, and go to be with Him forever. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank You. I thank You for this text. It's perplexing. It's challenging, Lord, but I'm so thankful for the words of Jesus. I'm thankful for His clear teaching and His parables, and especially for His pastoral heart that would challenge this inner group of four to always be ready, to be alert. Lord, there are many of us here who perhaps have gone throughout the last week or the last few months, and we really haven't thought much, if at all, about Your return. It doesn't motivate us the way it should. It's not the center of our aspirations. We're not alert. We, like the disciples in the garden, are asleep. I pray that you would help us to watch, to live with these realities in our minds, so that when we see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, and we meet Him in the clouds, we'll be ready. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.